into God's Word and asking the question of why. Why do we do some of the things that we do? Some of them are a little bit more detailed, some a bit more extensive, of course. But why do we do the things that we do? The questions that we've asked are questions like, why do we believe in Jesus Christ? Well, that may seem rather elementary. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you would think, why in the world wouldn't you believe in Jesus Christ? But it's a good question to ask and to answer occasionally. Why do we follow Him? We ask the question, why do we pray? Well, again, if you're a person of prayer, it's the most wonderful, one of the most wonderful things in the world, and you would wonder, why don't people pray? But why do we pray to Him? We've asked and answered that question. We've asked the question, why, be, why do we belong together? If you've been a part of AFA for a matter of many years or just many days, why, why are we together? Why are we a, a body of believers together? Why do we come here? Why do we commit to each other in, in this place of ministry? Why, why, do we, why do we belong together? The question also is, why, why do we serve? You, you just saw some, some, some wonderful, beautiful inside and out ladies who have answered the call to serve. And Why do we do that? Why do they do what they do for week after week and month after month? Why do they do that? Why do they serve others? Why are we... Why are we people who give? Just a moment ago, you gave in an offering. Again, many of you are giving, have been giving in offerings for an entire lifetime, but why do we do that? Why do we give joyfully? Last week, we asked the question, why do we praise? Almost every Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, we take some moments, and some people say, well, why do we do that? Because we must do it, because we're, we're grateful for all that He's given us, and there's something that happens also in us when we do praise so we've asked and we've answered some of these questions. This morning I want to ask this question and answer it from God's Word, and that is why, why we hope, specifically in hopeless times. Why we hope in hopeless times. That word hope is one of the most powerful words and sometimes misused words in any language. The word hope is potentially powerful. It's wonderful when you have it. It's shattering when you don't. This morning I want to see what the Word of God says to us about hope. And so I would like you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans chapter 4. We're talking about hope this morning. I, I, uh, I always, whoever is leading worship, I uh, always share my my theme of what I'm going to be doing so that they can, but I don't know what, what really what's going to be sung until Sunday, Sunday morning. And I, I was so blessed as we, time after time, sang these songs that are talking about our hope. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, the focus on Christ and not on the, not on the eye. Romans chapter 4, if you're there, before we read, let me kind of set up a little bit what this is talking about. The main character in the book of Romans, chapter 4, is the person known as Abraham. Abraham, of course, was long gone by this point. He's an Old Testament character, not a New Testament character. In fact, Abraham lived 2,000 years before the book of, of Romans was inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
Abraham lived as far away from those first century Christians as those first century Christians live away from us. So when they're talking about Abraham, it was a long time before this time. His life story is fascinating. If you know anything about Abraham, you know that every facet of his life, every chapter of his life is fascinating. It's recorded in the book of Genesis, and I'm going to reference a couple of those this morning. When Abraham was 75 years old, that's kind of when he appeared on the scene, or at least the recorded scene. He was 75 years old, and God told Abraham that he was going to make Abraham into the father of, quote, a great nation. He came to him one day, and he said, I am going to make out of you a great nation. Now, that's a pretty big promise. If God were to come to you and say, I'm starting with you, and from you I'm going to make a great people, man, you'd remember that for the rest of your life. And he did. It was a tremendous promise. A few chapters after that, again in the book of Genesis, God told Abraham, he took him out one night, he told him to look at the stars in the sky, and God told Abraham that his descendants would number as many and even more so than the stars in the sky. I looked it up once, and it seems like from, with, the, with, the, with the naked eye, you can see at any given time only about four to 6,000 stars. That's still a lot. But can you imagine Abraham out there looking at the stars, seeing those from horizon to horizon, and God telling him, this is how many descendants you're going to have. Of course, many more than even what could be seen. Because again, it was quite a promise. God told Abraham these things. Now, if you know anything about Abraham's timeline, as I mentioned a moment ago, he was 75 years old when God first came to him and said, you're going to be the father of a great nation. But he was 100 years old. That's 25 years after the promise had been given that his son was born and those many descendants became possible. God told him at age 75, but it wasn't until age 100, 25 years later, that even one descendant in this way, through this, this people, only one descendant in God's great plan. Just one. 25 years came and went between the promise of another generation and the beginning of another generation. 25 years between when God said, you're going to, your, your descendants are, you're, it's going to be a great nation. They're going to number like the stars in the sky. And year after year, he's wondering, when's it going to happen? I know that as those 25 years progressed, when the normal means of having a child did not happen, Abraham's hope in himself turned to hopelessness. I know this as a fact. I know that as time went by and he saw the, you know, month after month, his wife not having a child, not only month after month, but year after year, and he's realizing they're trying to conceive and they know how to do this, they know how it works, but it's not happening. Can you imagine that, some of you can imagine, the disappointment month after month, year after year, and he's looking at his wife and he's looking at himself and they, they're realizing they're getting older. No one their age has children. And with each passing year, the hope that was within himself, this child coming about by normal means, was becoming hopeless. Here's why we know this, because Romans chapter 4, verse 
18 reads this way. Abraham, when hope was dead within him, went on hoping in faith, believing that he would become, quote, the father of many nations. He relied on the word of God, which definitely referred to your descendants. It's very brief. Let me read it again. Abraham, when hope was dead within him, he went on hoping in faith, believing that he would become the father of many nations. He relied on the word of God, which definitely referred to your descendants. Please don't miss that. It says here that when Abraham's hope within him, when hope in himself was dead, it says he went on hoping in God. That is not a contradiction in terms in that verse. It's just that he realized that, yes, God did make the promise, but it's not going to happen by normal means. The hope that I have in myself is waning. He acknowledged that, but he went on. He kept on hoping in God, in faith. That's what this verse is telling us. He believed that if God said something, then somehow, some way, at some time, it would happen. He believed that if God said something, he believed that somehow, some way, at some time, it was going to happen. Let me just speak that into some of your lives. He knew that if God said something, then somehow, some way, and in some time, God was going to make it happen. It obviously was not going to happen in himself. His hope in himself was dead. But he kept on hoping in faith. That's what this verse is telling us. That when our hope in everything else dies, we can find hope in Jesus Christ and in what he has promised. Now this is, this is, an, this is a New Testament reference about an Old Testament person. But I want to give you another example from the Word of God of a New Testament person also recorded in the New Testament. It's from Acts chapter 23. So again, if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 23 because I want you to see the reference. The Apostle Paul, who we're talking about here. Now again, this is many years, 20 centuries after Abraham had walked the earth and gone to be with God. Now the Apostle Paul is alive. The Apostle Paul was one of the most powerfully used men of God in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul had been called of God. He and one other person were two of the first missionaries. Very effectively used of God. He would go into communities and he would begin preaching and oftentimes he would then be arrested, held. This is one of those occasions. In fact, this was the last occasion. From this point on, he would be incarcerated for the rest of his life. In Acts chapter 23, he, he's been arrested and being held for preaching about Jesus. And if you're going to be arrested for any other reason, that's a pretty good reason. But that night, it says, that night after he'd been, as he's being held, it says Jesus himself came and met with Paul. Now, now just imagine that. Here's a man, by the way, Paul was not one of the original disciples. Paul, as far as we know, had never seen Jesus during his earthly ministry. They had lived at the same time, but I don't think that Paul ever said it because in all of his writing, I think if he had seen him, actually heard one of his writings, he would have commented on it. 
He would have said, I remember when I was in that crowd of 5,000 and I got, I got a free meal, but more than that I heard about. He would have said that. But he didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ until after Jesus had died on the cross, been raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sent his Holy Spirit. In that way, you and I have a lot in common with Paul. And yet, now he's being held, he's been He's, been held in, he's being held in a jail for preaching the gospel. And the Bible says that night, chapter 23, that Jesus himself came and met with him. Can you imagine that? That's, that's worth getting arrested. It's worth being held. It's worth, worth being falsely accused if Jesus comes and ministers to you himself. And, and that's, that's what happened. You see this here. Chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord stood by Paul and he said, take heart, for you have witnessed boldly for me in Jerusalem, so you must also give your witness to me in Rome. Some translations may say, have hope. That's really what it means. Take heart, be encouraged, have hope, don't stop. Jesus told him himself, you have witnessed boldly for me here in Jerusalem, so you will be my witness in, in Rome. Please notice that. It's very important that you notice that line. Jesus told Paul that he would be his witness in Rome. You say, well, why is that important? Because the very next morning, the Bible says, the very next morning, <coughs> 40 men vowed not to eat or drink until Paul was killed. Can you imagine being in the position that somebody, even just one person, makes the vow that they will not eat or drink again until they kill you? That'd make you lock your doors. You'd be looking over your shoulder. You'd be calling the police. But now, this is not, this is not one person. This is 40. 40 people said, we're going we're to take him out. But you know what I, I think? I, I believe that Paul did not get too stressed out. Why? Because the night before, Jesus says, you're going to be my witness in Rome. I believe Paul thought to himself, <coughs> 40 or 400, it really doesn't matter. Jesus just last night said, I'm going to be in Rome. So they can do what they want. They're going to go awful hungry, and they're going to become very, very thirsty, but I'm going to get to Rome. In the next chapter, Acts chapters 24, 25, and 26, Paul has his day in court. Actually, a couple of days. In the natural, it was hopeless. Because even already at this time in the history of the church, other Christians uh, of, of lesser fame, of, of lesser influence, had already been found guilty and executed. So I, I'm sure in, in, in the normal, people would look at this and go, <coughs> boy, here's a guy that's been greatly used of God. We're sure going to miss him, but, but his days are numbered. People don't make it out of this court without a death sentence. But I believe Paul still had hope because Jesus said, Paul would be his witness in Rome. In Acts chapter 27, they put him on a prison ship heading for Rome. <coughs> and after that, up came a two-week batten down the hatches and say your prayers because I think we're all going to die kind of storm, followed by a shipwreck. In fact, if you read that account, you will find, you will find people that were saying, you know, they give up all hope. They were praying to their gods. They're thinking, this is it. Joni, would you hand me that water there? <coughs> been, thank you, Kristen. Been battling uh, a bit of a flu bug. 
all week long, and now it's affecting my voice, but thank God for his strength. So in chapter 27, they put him on this ship. There's this terrible two-week storm and then a shipwreck. But I don't think that he ever despaired. In fact, I know he, was never gonna, he never despaired. In fact, he said as much. Why? Because he remembers back sometime before, now some months before, he remembers how Jesus showed up to him in the middle of the night and said, you are going to be my witness in Rome. Why? Because he, he, in, in the natural, he had no hope. In the natural, people, people don't get away from 40 assassins. In the natural, people don't get out of out of that kind of, uh, out of a death sentence that could have very easily come in that courtroom. In the natural, people don't make it through two-week storms and shipwrecks. But Paul had heard from Jesus, and he, know, he knew that somehow, some way, I don't know how, but my hope in myself is waning, but I'm going to trust in the Word of God, and I am going to get to Rome. Chapter 28, after the shipwreck, they swim to shore, and while they're putting together a fire, the Bible says that a deadly viper... <coughs> came out of the wood and, and snatched onto his hand, latched onto him. The thing was a killer. The people around him said he's going to die. Paul shook it off into the fire. I don't think he thought he, for a moment that he was going to die. Why? Because Jesus said he was going to be in Rome. You see, when our hope in everything else dies, when we look at things in the natural and we say there's absolutely no way out of this, we can find hope in Christ and in what he has promised. When all hope in other things were stripped away, Paul still had hope. He still had hope. For a few minutes this morning, I want to share with you about a time in my life when, as it says here, hope within me died, but I went on hoping in faith. I want to share this pretty significant event with you that I've shared on a few occasions one-on-one -on -one with people, but never in a group setting like this. While I was in high school, my last couple of years in high school, I grew up in Rapid City. I was an amateur spelunker. That's a pretty fancy name. A spelunker is a person who explores caves. Again, growing up near Rapid City, I grew up near the Black Hills. Some of you have been tourists out in the Black Hills, or maybe you've lived out there, and while there are many developed caves for tourism in the Black Hills, you have caves like Wind Cave and, and Crystal Cave and, and uh, uh, just a lot of uh, Rushmore Cave, a lot of developed caves, there are also about 70 to 80 undeveloped caves. A lot of people don't know where they are. In fact, they don't release that information very much. But if you go through a certain degree of training, and courses and certification, they will issue you a map and you can find the coordinates and you can go to an undeveloped cave. The, the entrance is just uh, maybe under a tree or under a rock or behind you know, this, this little bit of a cliff or something and you go in there and you suddenly discover this, this beautiful, beautiful cavern. So having gone through this certification and this training, a handful of close friends and I would explore various caves my last couple of years of high school. One Saturday, not long before leaving home for college, myself and four or five other friends were crawling through a cave that was new to all of us except one person. One person had been here before. He knew, he knew a lot of the different turns and places and things to do, and there's quite a knowledge, body of knowledge that he had. One passage that we had, which was about 50 feet below the surface underground, was 
was just wider than our shoulders, and it was shaped remarkably like a sink trap that you will find underneath your sinks. It looks something like this. In fact, go ahead and put that graphic up there, John. Thank you. It looks something like this. On the left side, there would be the entrance, and you would come down, and you would take a turn, and then you would go up, and then you would go down, and then it would open up into the rest of the cavern. You couldn't see the rest of the cavern until you went through this particular formation. The guy who had been with us, who had been in this cave before, the guy who was with us, my best friend, his name was Larry, is Larry. Um, Larry told us, he, he said, here's what you need to do. He told us how to maneuver that particular passage. He said, you have to go head first. So you go head first down that tube, and it's not straight down. It's not like you're going to, you know, run. It's a lot of, lot of different juttings and so forth. He says, you have to go down head first, your arms always in front of you. Again, it's just wider than your shoulders. In fact, there were some places where you would have to crawl, inhale, exhale, crawl, because it was that, that tight. By the way, if you have claustrophobia this morning, you just need to take a deep breath right now, extend your arms. And a lot of people can't do this, and for whatever reason, I just never had claustrophobia. <coughs> and then he said, when you get down to the bottom here on, on the left side, he said, going head first, you have, to, you have to twist a certain way, and you have to turn at this point. You have to shift your hips and go ahead and crawl up. He told us it was going to be a very tight turn. I didn't think about this till later. My friend Larry is five foot four. My other friends went through first. I was the last person through. They made the turn just fine. When I tried making that first turn, which was the hardest of the turns, um, my, I, I don't now realize, I don't know what I did wrong. If my body wasn't turned right, I was head first, but I don't know. I knew that we had to go down and then turn a little bit and then come up, sit up, and then, and then scoot our backside up a little bit and then stand up and then go ahead and make our way up around the other way. And I don't know exactly what I did if I didn't turn right or if it was because I was tall. I was very thin then, but I was, I was much taller than all of the other persons. I'm 6'4", my friend was 5'4". And my, my body on that first turn became very tightly wedged in that turn. You can go ahead and put that next graphic up, John. This is a rough, that's a rough approximation of that, except it's much narrower. And I was at about this angle. If my head is down here, it was about this angle. And I had gotten down, my shoulders shifted a little bit, and my head was just poking up. I was about like this, upside down. My arms, excuse me, my arms up like this, upside down. I became tightly wedged. I worked for some, uh, for some minutes. Again, everyone else is ahead of me, and I'm working very hard trying to, trying to wiggle through. And the further I got in, the more tightly I became. And again, I attribute most of that just because of the long legs. My feet had slipped down the far rock wall, and now, again, not, having to, not able to bend them, they became like wedges holding me in tightly. Well, I'm stuck there. My hands are up. My head is bent very difficult to breathe because it's so tight. And I called for my friend, my friends, and the most experienced of them, Larry, came through. Again, face first, he came up, down, 
when he came face, our faces were close together. He had come to Christ just a few years earlier, Larry did, and he continues to serve Jesus today. But I look back and I thank God that, that I was a part of his life at that time and, and him coming and growing in Christ. He came back through the passage, he removed my helmet, and he tried to pull me up. And the harder he would pull, the more tightly I would become. Now understand, I was deep underground. From 50 feet down, I was upside down. I was in a dark and very tight space, and my face was against a rock wall. And I remained that way for nearly 20 minutes. 20 minutes does not seem like a very long time, and it's not. Unless you're deep underground, upside down, in a dark and tight place with your face against a rock wall. The only way that I can describe it is if you're feeling if you suddenly found yourself in a tight casket 50 feet underground. It's hard for me to describe the feeling that I had, though like that I can go back and remember the dread that, over, that came over me. In that desperate place, I learned three things in a very short time. First of all, I learned how quickly hope can erode. I learned how quickly hope can erode. See, here I am, I'm 17, 18 years old. I'm 18 years old at that point. And I had a strong body, but I no longer found hope in my strong body because my strength was gone. After even just five minutes, I had nothing left. I'd been a wrestler in high school, and I was strong, but I couldn't wrestle a mountain. My strength was gone. I was as weak as I've ever been in my life. I could no longer find hope in my mind. It generally worked well, but it was starting to shut down. I think I was starting to go into early shock. The dread was so great, I couldn't even think straight. I couldn't find hope in my parents or my brother. They were 50 miles and 50 feet away, and they were totally unaware of what was going on in that moment. There was no hope for any emergency personnel. There was a ranger camp not very far <coughs> from where we were, and we were on a remote mountain. But how would you contact them? Remember, I was the last one in, and I was blocking the entrance. There was no other way in or out. No one could be contacted. No one except those in our party knew exactly where we were. It would be at the very best many hours before people started looking, and it could have been days before they found us. I had no hope in anything. My best friend was there, his face just a, a foot or 18 inches from mine. He was the best cave crawler among us, but even with all of his experience, it just wasn't working. Felt like I was a man who was buried underground, just waiting for death. So that was the first thing that I learned. How quickly hope can erode. The second thing that I found that day in that desperate place is that Satan speaks very loudly in hopeless times. Some of you need to get that. You know that. Satan can speak very, very loudly in hopeless times. I didn't think about this at the time, but I came across this sometime later. In his book, The Divine Comedy, 
the Italian poet Dante, said that inscribed on the entrance into hell are the words, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. When I read that sometime later, I thought, that's really what I felt. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Because I had abandoned all hope. And I can tell you that in that desperate place in those 20 minutes, and it didn't take 20 minutes for me to get there, it didn't, be, it didn't take 20 minutes for him to start speaking loudly, but I heard the voice of Satan. I realize now that Satan was speaking loudly because after nearly 20 minutes with blood flowing to my head, with my breathing becoming more difficult, with panic overwhelming me, my body terribly, terribly weak, I had this intense, with the last strength that was in me, I had this intense desire to expedite my demise by repeatedly slamming my head against the rock wall just to make the fear and the dread go away. I'm not proud of that fact. I've not shared it with many people. I have never thought of taking my life before that time or since that time, but I understand now how the enemy can use hopelessness for self-destruction. In fact, let me just pause in my story for a moment. If there is anyone here this morning and that thought has crossed your mind, you've wondered, if I just end it here, the pain will stop, then please understand you are not here by accident this morning. And I would love to meet with you and pray with you. But I believe that God wants to do a work in your heart right now. The enemy speaks very, very loudly in hopeless times. There's one more thing that I learned while I was upside down in that dark and tight place with my face against a rock wall. In fact, it was the most important thing that I learned that day. And that is that regardless of how deep or dark or desperate, Jesus can be there. Regardless of how deep or dark or desperate, Jesus can be there. And he was. His Holy Spirit was there in a very powerful way. I had been filled with his Holy Spirit just a few months before. And in that very dark and difficult and nearly hopeless place, he came. I sensed the power of God in those moments and I'll tell you why in a moment. But I felt his presence and his power and his peace unlike I have felt a few times before. Like that line in Romans chapter 4, when hope was dead within me, I went on hoping in faith. It's all I had. It's all I had. Believing that God would somehow fulfill his plan. So there I was in that desperate place me and my best friend Larry, we had a little prayer meeting. He reached down. He says, Gary, we need to pray. I said, yeah, we do. Because I'm almost done. We prayed. And I sensed the power of God. And I sensed the presence of God. He's weary. He's upside down now as well. It's difficult for him. 
He doesn't have much more time that he can help me. We prayed. He says, Gary, we need, to, we need to do something. Remember, just a little bit of my shoulders were showing. So he reached down, and a little bit with my help, he began pulling clothes off my upper body. Stripped right down to the skin of my upper body. There was just enough room. And he began to jerk, and he began to pull with everything that he had. All I could do was hold on. And I don't know what happened. Maybe God moved a mountain. But I know he moved me. And through a lot of pulling and more abrasions than I can count, I made it through. Went into the cave, rested a little while. Of course, I had to go back through the same entrance. Once again, they made sure I was the last one through. And I never told my parents for years. They never knew about it. Since then, I have been in other places where I felt like I was upside down in dark and tight places facing rock walls. I've been in those places again, not, not literally, but I've been in those places. And on every occasion, I've heard Satan speak loudly, telling me to abandon all hope. But more importantly, Jesus has met me in those places, reminding me that his plan and his purpose will continue. Maybe you've been there too. Maybe you are there. Maybe you are right now finding yourself, and if you are not there, I, I can almost promise you, though I'm not pessimistic, I'm a realist as well, you will find yourself there. You will find yourself in dark and tight and sometimes abandoned places where you feel like you have no movement whatsoever. They will come without warning. You will get up that day thinking it's just a wonderful day, but at some point during that day, you'll find yourself in that desperate place. You will be amazed at how quickly you can get there. It may come with a phone call. It may come with a letter, an email, a text. You may see it on the news. You may hear it by word of mouth. It may click in your brain. It may come to your spirit. But you will find yourself in that dark, difficult, and tight place. You will find that the things in which many have foolishly placed their hope are rapidly eroded. You will find the things that you thought you could find your hope in simply will not do it any longer. Your body might turn on you. Your mind might fail you. Your job or your business may be solid in the morning and gone by sunset. The assets that you hold today could be gone in a tomorrow crash. The hope that you may have placed in a government or a candidate or a political party will vanish. You need to hear that in an election year. You need to hear it in any year. My friends, vote wisely, but you're a fool if you place your hope in any person, in any party, in any platform. Our hope can vanish because of pain, 
Our hope can vanish because of loss or death or repeated setback. Our hope can vanish when bad things happen to good people. Our hope can flee when beauty fades, friends abandon, or when family walks out. And be ready. In those hopeless places, Satan can speak very loudly. Be ready. In those hopeless places, Satan can speak very loudly. He will try to get the upper hand when you cannot understand something (coughs) or explain something. But more importantly, in that time and in that place, like countless followers of Jesus Christ before you, you will find that he can be there. I don't know how. I don't know when. But I know who. If you have a living, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I promise you, He will be there. I promise you that if you find yourself in that place and you call on Him, He will come. And He will be there. Your friends may not be able to do it. Your family, all of your abilities all of your experience, but I can promise you that he will be there in that dark, difficult, desolate, desperate place. Put your hope in him. Put your hope in him. In him alone, we can find our hope in hopeless times. Why do we hope in hopeless times? Because of Jesus. This morning, I want to pray with some of you. I don't know what your hopeless place is. I only know that I was to bring this message. I want to sing a song that we sang earlier. In fact, Joni, if you would help us out, and Lana, if you would help out as well. I want to sing the song that we sang earlier, I Can Do All Things Through Christ. I had not planned on, had not planned on singing this. I had planned on singing something else. But when I saw that part, I can move a mountain if he is the source of my life. I said, that's the song. Again, I don't know if God moved the mountain or God just moved me, but I know this, that I'm, I'm here today because when all hope was gone, he gave hope. But now you're there. Some of you may, may be facing rock walls and you feel like upside down and the blood's running to your head and you're just about to give up. Some of you are despairing with everything in you. But it's my desire today that God restores hope in you where there is no natural means of hope. Lord Jesus, right now in this place, would you bow your heads, please? Jesus, in this place and in this time, I ask that you will move by your Holy Spirit. I believe you already have. You've taken these words that you placed on my heart to share. You've already, by your Holy Spirit, moved them into people's hearts. 
who've said, yeah, that's me. Or maybe, Lord, you're wanting us to get ready for that time ahead. Maybe, Lord, you've revealed to us that we've found our hope in too many other things. That our identity, our hope, our strength, our our image is, is tied up into some other lesser things. Help us, Lord, to realize that really my, my hope is, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would do a work of hope restoration. That as some die to the hope in lesser things, they would prevail in the hope that comes with their faith in you. Pray for my brother or sister whose face is against a rock wall. Would you restore hope today, Lord? I know that you can as we respond to you. Jesus name. Amen. Would you please stand with me? I'd like you to sing this song with me again. We sang it earlier. I can do all things. Please understand, we often misuse this, putting the emphasis on the I rather than on the through Christ. You can do nothing. You've tried. You can do nothing. It won't be enough to get you out of that deep and difficult place. But through Christ, through Christ, He can restore hope. Let's sing this again and then I'm going to give. Let's sing this through one, more, one or two times and then I'm going to give final directions and we're going to close. And we're going to close around these altars. Joan. I can do
unconditional statement, I can do it, but only if you are in my life, only if you are the strength of my life. I cannot do it on my own, but through you, I can. Straight out of the book of Philippians chapter four. This morning, we're gonna, we're gonna close in prayer, but I'm also gonna open up these altars. This is an altar area. It's not a three-point line, it's an altar area. And I want you to come forward and, and if, if in any way you just say, you know, there are going to be people here to pray with you. And, and, uh, and, and, and if it's not you, go ahead and consider yourself dismissed. If you kind of keep the conversations and stuff towards that side of the, of the building or the room. But, but if you would like renewed hope, all right, let's put it that way. You're saying, Pastor, I, I'm in a hopeless place and I need that, I need that hope. That, that hope that comes with my faith in Jesus, Jesus Christ. And I just really need that. And, and we're just going to agree together in prayer. And then you can pray for as long as you'd like. But there are going to be people up here to pray for you. I'm going to be one of them. And, and so would you do that? Don't, don't leave. Don't, if, if you're in that place, don't leave. Come forward. We'll pray with you. And we'll trust God that that hope will be for you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters and Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that you've saved them. I pray that even if, 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 they, if they don't know you yet, Lord, even in this moment, they can just reach out to you and say, Jesus, save me. Come into my heart. I give my life to you. I acknowledge that you are, that you died on the cross and you rose from the dead. I need you. I need you. I can't do it. I'm upside down in a dark and tight place, face against a rock wall. But I've heard of the Savior who can meet me there and work miracles and move mountains if necessary. So, Lord, I pray for hope to be renewed in these moments ahead. Then, Lord, as we go our way, whether it be now or in the hours ahead, Jesus, we go in the power of your Holy Spirit. Use us. Use us to be people who take hope to the hopeless. That's what our world needs. That's what they're lacking. They're trying to find hope in the, the next candidate trying to find hope in, in that next relationship. They're trying to find hope in, in, in amassing a certain amount so that they can make it to the other. They're trying to find hope in acknowledgement or in, in beauty or in power or in influence. God, we're never going to find hope unless it's in you. We are your emissaries. We are your witnesses. Help us to take hope to the hopeless. Help us to be that person who comes down the chute face to face with them. Say, Jesus isn't done yet. Thank you, Lord. Meet us at these altars. Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you this morning. Lead us again. I can do all things. In your presence I find.